Well, guys, uh, we're blessed to be here this morning to share with you. Uh, I actually just got in from the Ukraine uh, about three weeks ago with Luke, and uh, back in January we're in Afghanistan, and we're going to get into that a moment here. Um, in about two and a half weeks, I leave for the South Sudan. Uh, when Afghanistan collapsed overnight, we had a tremendous problem on our hand. We have a division of our ministry, we call it ghost operations. It's an invisible hand in the closed world of radical Islam. We have 400 pastors that are implanted in nine of the 10 most dangerous Islamic countries in the world. Uh, when this happened, we had 22 missionaries in Afghanistan in the underground. And I got a call from our Dutch office and they said, Wes, with their extended families, there's over 200 people. We were expecting them to all be killed for their faith. At that time, I went down and uh, we knew this was very serious because one of the families that had gone into hiding, they had discipled uh, three Islamic families. They had led them to Christ. Uh, Taliban uh, found the families and killed everyone from father, mothers, and children. So I went down to my staff and I said, guys, we're going into wartime operations. And a week later, uh, five former Navy SEALs would fly in, three Marines, all Special Forces, one Army Green Beret, and one brother from the CIA, and Pastor Don McClure came. I figured uh, I better get out ahead of this before people start finding out what we're doing, so I wanted Don to be aware of it uh, to make sure that we weren't getting ourselves into too much trouble out there. And guys, uh, we would plan an operation into uh, the Sudan. We'd go in with two teams simultaneously. Uh, the first team would fly in in a chopper and land at 12,000 feet. Uh, Luke and another SEAL, Luke was in the Marines, a SEAL would deploy and take off in one direction. I went with the second team. It was at the same time, just a different part. And uh, we went in with two SEALs and two Marines. The, the two SEALs went off in one direction, and me and Brent went off in the other. Brent's on my staff. Uh, he was in 2nd Force Recon, the elite of the Marine Corps Special Forces. And uh, we were told we were going to be climbing to maybe 4,000 feet, but we ended up having to climb to 11,500 feet. And uh, in about 14 hours, from what we could tell with the GPS, we traveled 12 miles and from 2,000 to 11,500 feet. And then we got to the top of the mountain and we launched our drones. And what we're looking for is what's called a rat line. A rat line is an escape route of how to get people out. There's a lot more to this, guys, but I can't go into this. This is an ongoing operation at this time. When we got on the mountain, it was truly uh, one of the most difficult climb that I've ever made in my life, and everyone that I talked to said the same. Um, I remember that when I got off the mountain, uh, my toenails were all black with the blood that was under them. I actually lost two toenails on that mountain. Fortunately, they're almost growing back, because uh, that was in last year that this happened. Uh, we had one brother by the name of Rodney. Rodney was with the elite SEAL Team 6, 22 years with the SEALs, uh, 12 years with SEAL Team 6, and uh, 13 years with the CIA. And he lost three on that mountain, so this was kind of how difficult the climb was. As you're going up the mountain, there really is no trail. Uh, we're going places that nobody's ever been before. And uh, one of the things with the guys, every Marine and every SEAL had had multiple tours of operations in Afghanistan. Uh, they knew the other side of the mountains. I was the only one who had not been there. My war had been the southern Sudan. And so we're trying to find escape routes to get people out of there. Uh, I remember that I was coming down the side of one mountain, and, and guys, probably only 5 to 10 percent of what we climbed had any semblance of a trail. Uh, they have what's called an ibex. It's a rare mountain goat. They're very huge, massive horns. And so uh, an ibex trail might be six inches, and there's a lot of gravel, a lot of shell rock, a lot of sand, and it, you just slide all the time. 
And if you miss a footing, you fall a thousand feet and you die. And uh, I was coming down the side of the mountain and I began to hear sliding and I didn't have time to think about it. And I just reached back and I grabbed and I caught our interpreter as he was going off the side of the mountain. One of the things that I want to share with you guys is I really believe that God wants to use you guys in extremely powerful ways for his ministry. Uh, one of the things we are definitely living in the last days and we're racing towards judgment, we're racing towards persecution in this nation. And I believe that God wants his men to be extremely strong. You know, when King David is dying, he's talking to his son Solomon. And when you're dying, guys, people always say the things that they normally feel they need to say. If you haven't told someone you love them, you want to tell them that you love them. But what David says to Solomon, he says, Solomon, be strong and therefore prove yourself to be a man. And I believe that God really wants to stir up the zeal that's within us. Paul says in the book of Romans, he says, stir up the zeal that's within you. And he wants us to come to a place that we have a tremendous passion for the Lord. You know, for many years I've come to the Calvary conferences and it seems like every year someone has to deal with the issue of drinking or the issue of, of, of fornication or adultery. And every year I hear of new pastors falling away. And guys, one of the things that I realize is telling people that doesn't seem to really work. The only thing that keeps a person pure is when they have a tremendous passion and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we need to have. If, if you're missing that in your walk with the Lord or you've strayed from that, we want to encourage you today to come back to that place of a deep fellowship with the Lord. And um, God began to do miracles. And guys, I can technically explain to you what happened over there, but it does not make any sense. And to say it because we had Marines and SEALs and Special Forces and CIA and FBI, and we had all of that with us, it doesn't explain what happened there. We got us started getting calls from people. We got a call from YWAM, and they said, our country director is in a certain city. The Taliban knows he's there. They will find him within two hours, and they're going to butcher this kid. They had actually written a letter before the fall of... Afghanistan, and they said, we know you're here, you're a traitor to Islam, we're going to slaughter you, we're going to butcher you, and they said, they're going to find him with two hours, can you guys help us? I said, guys, two hours is not a lot of time, but I gave the task to Brent and Luke, and fortunately they were able to get a hold of one of our assets, and we showed up an hour later, we picked the kid up, we got him out of there, an hour later, the Taliban was at the door. And uh, then we got a call from uh, Heather Mercer. Many of you remember Heather Mercer, very famous missionary, was imprisoned by the Taliban and uh, was released when U.S. forces went in in 2001 by the military. And uh, she said, I have 28 people in country. Uh, they're all believers. They will all be killed for their faith. Can you guys help us? We're able to send an operational team, get those 28. But the one that surprised me the most is we got a call from Shannon Spann. And guys, if that name seems a little familiar, Mike Spann was the first CIA officer killed in Afghanistan back in 2001. I remember it like it was yesterday. It troubled me because they trusted an honor system among the Taliban, which I knew really did not exist. And uh, Mike had been in the Marine Corps. He was in Special Forces. He was recruited by uh, the CIA. Shannon was also recruited by the CIA. They met at the farm. They fell in love, got married, had three children. And when the U.S. went in there, they went in with the Alpha Team, which was the first team to go into Afghanistan. And uh, Shannon called us, and what she told us later on is she said that when Afghanistan began to collapse because of her connections within the CIA, both current and former, she was getting a tremendous amount of people out of Afghanistan. But when the last U.S. aircraft left, she couldn't get anybody out anymore. And she goes, one night I was walking around and I was praying. I go, Lord, I do not know what to do. She's a very godly woman. And the Lord said, Shannon, why are you going to the world? Why are you not going to my people? She goes, Lord, I don't know your people. Well, he gave her a name. 
And she called this gentleman. I don't know who he is, guys. I've heard of him since, but I had no idea who this gentleman was or what he's even about. And he said, Shannon, call for uh, far-reaching ministry. So she called, and uh, I was out of the country. She spoke to Brent, and she said, Brent, I have 20, uh, 28 people in country, I believe it was, or 26. I can't remember if it was 26 or 28. And uh, she said, they are not believers. They're, they are Muslims, but they all helped our country. They will all be martyred. Will you guys help me? So Brent called me up and said, what do you want to do? I said, let's green light the operation. We're able to get them out too. And guys, it would be kind of miracle after miracle about how God did that. During the time when the Lord did this, I remember that I flew to South Sudan to meet with the president of the country to ask for permission to evacuate people into the southern Sudan. Now, the southern Sudan is not what we want to take anybody. There is no infrastructure whatsoever to take them. There's probably a 2% employment rate in that nation. So it's not a place that a person can even rebuild a life. And uh, within an hour and a half of being in his office, I had the sign letter. But I was in my hotel in Kampala. I was flying back the next day to head to Afghanistan, and I was praying one night. It was about 3.30 in the morning. I wasn't praying, being spiritual at 3.30 in the morning. I was literally getting a phone call every 15 minutes, so I couldn't sleep. So I was up just praying, and, and uh, I said, Lord, I, I don't know what to do. Uh, we had one brother that had come over. Uh, Jared was with uh, SEAL Team 3. He was their lead sniper. From what I understand, he has a couple hundred kills of Taliban. He was a tremendous man with weapons. And Jared had contacted me a while back, and uh, he wanted to come over and see our work. And so he flew over to uh, South Sudan, and after he saw the guys, he said, you know what, when I first read about your ministry, he goes, I wondered, is this true? He goes, but brother, after being here, this is the real deal. Well, we became friends. And I said, Jared, I said, I need to plan an operation into Afghanistan to rescue these people. Can you help me? And he goes, yes. Well, the first quote that he gave me was $400,000. And guys, we had the money, but again, you don't want to spend $400,000 and it goes to waste. You go over there and it's a fruitless operation. So I was up and I was praying. I said, Lord, I, I don't know how I'm going to count to the body of Christ if I spend 400000 And the Lord spoke to my heart and he said, I'm going to give you one piece of the puzzle at a time and you're going to have to pray and trust me for the next piece of the puzzle. Well, the very next day, a gentleman called up and he said, Wes, I've heard about what you're doing. And we had not asked anybody for anything. He goes, I was praying last night, and the Lord told me to send you $400,000. And guys, so far, the Lord has brought in quite a few millions of dollars, which we have spent on operations there. We have gotten over 500, maybe close to 600 people out of Afghanistan. We have a tremendous problem. On March 4th, we had three aircraft scheduled to leave Afghanistan with 910 people on them. But when Russia invaded Ukraine, from what our intelligence has told us, Afghanistan had an agreement with Russia that they would not allow a plane to leave Afghanistan and go to an EU or NATO country. So months of work seemed to be scrapped. Fortunately, we didn't look at it as a defeat. We said God has a different plan. We prayed, we sought the Lord, and I cannot go into it, but we're moving people quite rapidly. Currently, we have about 710 people in safe houses. While I was over in the Ukraine, Brent called me on the phone. He said, I think you need to know this. He goes, there are no foreign organizations, government or private, that are extracting people out of Afghanistan. They've all pulled out. We're the last one, West." And I said, this cannot be true. I mean, I, I, I can't believe that they've all given up. So I called Luke, and Luke confirmed to me that, yes, it was true. We're the only ones left. Since that time, we have received over 3,500 requests to extract people out of Afghanistan. 
Guys, when we were over there, I was asked by YWAM to meet with the family, Luke, me, and Brett, and the rest of the team. We did not get these people out of Afghanistan. They'd gotten themselves out. But the Lord was about, excuse me, about to show me something. And uh, we went and met him at an Afghan restaurant. It was not in Afghanistan. It was in a neighboring country. They had escaped. Uh, there was a mother and her mother. Both of their husbands had been killed by the Taliban. The younger mother had two daughters. Uh, I think one was about four or one was about six <clears throat> when they escaped. And uh, the younger mother's husband who was killed was actually killed by his own brother. He was a Taliban officer. He was a very wicked man. And guys, he tortured his brother for three days. Now, I have probably seen a thousand dead bodies in my life. I've seen a lot of combat, a lot of war. I've never seen anybody that was as brutally butchered as this guy was. After he killed them, he raped his brother's wife and he raped his brother's four-year-old daughter. The six-year-old saw it. She was extremely traumatized by it. And... Uh, so the mother's telling me, she said, and, and I'm watching these people, they have this beautiful meal. It looks like they have not ex- changed their clothes in weeks, if not months. They probably fled with what they had on their back. And they're eating because there's hunger, but there's no joy in their face. And you know how it is when you're hungry, you eat, you have joy, you're, you're happy about it. Not a smile there. And the mother told me that she said, through my relatives, he has contacted us and told us, if we do not come back, He is going to murder all 14 members of my family. When she said that, the older daughter that watched the rape of her mother and sister just began to weep. She just began to sob. And I said to the mother, I said, Jesus said, come to me, all you burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I said, now, first of all, you cannot put the safety of your adult family above that of your children. I said, that being said, we will send an operational team to get them. But you have to tell them that when we come, They have to leave immediately. If they don't leave, we're not coming back for them. And that operation is in progress right now, guys. When we got done, we got up to leave, and the little girl came over, and she put her arms around my waist, and she just started crying, which is not common. They're very afraid of men in Afghanistan. And Luke said, I doubt she's ever felt safe with a man before other than her father. I leaned over, and I kissed her on top of the head, and I said, honey, do not worry. I go, I will not let anybody hurt you or your family. And guys, after that, we took the children to get some clothing for them. Uh, You know what kids need? Play clothes, school clothes, winter clothes. It's very cold in the country that's bordering Afghanistan where they're at. And underwear, all the things that children need. Well, that little girl would not let go of my hand the entire time I was there. It actually got almost humorous because she'd be trying to put on a shirt and she'd be trying to stick her arm through one yet not letting go of my hand. And I finally said to her, I go, honey, you can let go of my hand. I'll take it after you get done. Uh, After we got them the clothing purchased. Uh, Luke and Brent took him to get ice cream, and that was the first time I saw smiles on her face. When I was back there in January, she had told everybody, my grandfather is coming to see me. And I really felt like the Lord spoke to me during this time, and he said, this little girl is to be your daughter the rest of your life, her life. Whether she ever lives with you is irrelevant, but you're to watch over her, you're to take care of her, and you're to provide for this family. And guys, we're going to do that. As believers, we want to do things not so that we might be seen by men. And guys, I want to share this very clearly. We're not doing this to be seen by men. You know, when I talked to Shannon, Shannon actually flew out to meet with me. And she said, you know, when I first heard about you, I started reading about your ministry. And I went to your website and I called up this brother and I said, who is Wes Bentley? Who's Far Reaching Ministries and who is uh, Brent? 
And he said, Shannon, if my family were in Afghanistan, these are the two men I'd want to go and get them. And we take that very seriously, guys. And I told Shannon, I said, Shannon, we are not doing this for self-recognition. We're doing this because they're a part of the body of Christ and we have a compassion for people that are suffering. And I said, you know, I have no intention of ever writing a book about this. I said, unless the Lord tells me to. Now guys, I've been in Southern Sudan for 26 years and I've had a dozen people try to get me to write a book and I've refused to do it. See, what I've shared with the body of Christ before is I think that we have the only book that we need for the world and it's right here. And I understand the value as a roadmap for future missionaries, but if God kills me, I will, but if not, I will never write a book. And uh, guys, during this time, there's some things that really bizarre started to happen. I got a call from a gentleman that worked in the American Intelligence Network. I'm not gonna tell you what organization, I think you guys can figure it out. We need to be a little bit careful about what he say. But he said, do you mind if I fly out and meet you? And I said, no, absolutely. Well, I was shocked he got on a plane and he flew out that day. And he came to my office, he goes, Wes, you are not aware of this. He goes, but the entire intelligence world is talking about you and your ministry. I said, that cannot be possible. I said, why in the world would you guys be talking about us? He goes, we're U.S. intelligence and we can't get anybody out of Afghanistan. You're a Christian organization and you guys are getting people out all over the place. Well, guys, I, I, I set him down and I spent 45 minutes explaining the word of God to him. And I said, we pray over everything. We seek the Lord. This is not an end of our own strength. We have to trust Jesus Christ for every decision we make. When I was in Afghanistan in January, he wrote me a message through Signal. He said, I need to tell you something. He goes, when I met you, I was a Catholic. I had walked away from faith many years ago. But after seeing the way you guys operate and the way you behave, I have surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. <laughs> and guys, this guy has become an absolute rock star in helping us get people out of Afghanistan. He's a great brother. Um, one of my favorite people in the Word of God is the prophet Jeremiah, guys, and there's a lot of reasons why. We know that Jeremiah served somewhere around 40 years, possibly 50 years of ministry. And Jeremiah is not only a prophet of the Lord, he's a priest of the Lord. And what is unique about that, what I understand, is there were only three prophets in the Old Testament that were priests. It was Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Ezekiel. And the job of the priest is to bring people into close fellowship with their God. So for 40 years he labors, but the nation never comes to Christ. Well, by the world standards, we would look at it and probably say, this man failed in ministry. But see, the thing is, is that Jeremiah would never live to see the fruit of his ministry. But Jeremiah would have tremendous fruit in his life. Out of his life would come Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Out of his life would come Daniel. And out of his life would come Ezekiel. And when King Nebuchadnezzar built the golden altar and commanded the whole world to bow down, they refused to do it. And what's amazing is Nebuchadnezzar actually comes to them, and he's actually gracious, which is not the way a king is. He said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, maybe you didn't understand. And he gives them a second chance. But what they say to him, O King Nebuchadnezzar, our God has the ability to deliver us, but whether he delivers us or not, we will not bow down to your God. And an entire generation knows who the living God is. But see, they had watched Jeremiah preach to a nation. Somewhere around 70 years later, it's Daniel's turn. He's 90 years of age, so if they were 20, he's probably somewhere around 70 years later. Once again, he's commanded to worship a false god. 
He refuses to do it. And guys, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, and once again, God delivers him. And another entire generation knows who God is. And the Word of God tells us that after what happened with Nebuchadnezzar, it said that Nebuchadnezzar feared the Lord. It said that King Darius spent the night in fasting and prayer. See, these men's lives had a tremendous effect for the gospel, but it came from Jeremiah. Then we have Ezekiel. And Ezekiel writes twice in the Word of God that we're to go to the sinners and we're to tell them about their sin. If we do not go to the sinners and we do not tell them about their sin, God will require their blood on our head. We have a responsibility. Guys, we're living in a generation where pastors do not want to deal with hard issues because they know that persecution is coming. I think most pastors dread coming to Romans chapter 1. And I think there's a lot of people out there that they're actually glad they're getting older. They're looking forward to handing that off to their younger pastor. You know, it's like you're in a rugby team. And guys, I'm from Africa, so we have rugby over there. And if you've ever seen rugby players, they're big boys. And you see a guy running down the football field, and he's got that ball, and all of a sudden you see 10 guys coming him, and these guys are giants. And then all of a sudden he turns around and he throws it to the guy behind him, he sends it back to him. And I think for a lot of pastors, this is what they want to do. They want to toss that ball back to the younger pastors. Well, guys, one of the things that I don't want to do is I don't want to leave a fight that I'm supposed to fight for my children to fight. Abraham Lincoln said, the path that you want your children to travel, you must first travel that path yourself. Edmund Burke said, all that it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. I would say all that it takes for evil to triumph is for God's people to do nothing. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says in chapter 10, verse 23, and guys, it does not read very well in the King James Version, but I think it reads extremely well in the NIV. And in the NIV, it says, Jeremiah says, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his footsteps. See, our lives are not supposed to belong to us. We are supposed to be a people that is absolutely lost in Christ, that we are defined by our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. When you go to the mission field, you do not go there for fame or fortune. You do not go there to make a name for yourself or for your church or your denomination. You do not go there to write books. You do not go there to make movies. You go there for one reason only, because the love of God compels you to reach people with the great hope of the gospel. And guys, one of the things is people make God's word so difficult sometimes to understand God's will, I would say. But 98% of God's will is written in his word. There's the 2% that's mystical that God has to lead us and guide us. But 98% of what we're supposed to do is written right there. Go to the poor, go to the hungry, go to the afflicted, go to those suffering, go to those in prison, go to the widows and orphans. It tells us exactly what to do. We don't have to figure it out. <clears throat> it's written there right in pages for us to see. And I really believe that God wants to use you guys in many ways. And I want to share with you guys, me being a soldier does not make me more of a spiritual person. Being a spiritual person is doing what God has called you to do. You know, I went to Mike McIntosh's school many years ago, the School of Evangelism, back in 1984. And I remember that one midweek service, Mike McIntosh came out on stage and said, hey, one of the ladies did not show up for childcare." And I wasn't going to volunteer, guys. There were literally hundreds of women in that room. Not one single woman raised their hand. They knew something I didn't. So... <laughs> Using a great lack of discernment, I raised my hand. I got the four-year-olds. I would rather be back in Sudan getting shot at than go through that again. 
See, being spiritual is doing what God has called you to do, to obey his word, to follow what he has directed his church to do. But in Jeremiah chapter 12, Jeremiah's going through a time in ministry that he's struggling, guys. It's been a difficult time in ministry. And you'd think that maybe after all he'd go through that God would be a little bit gracious, but God's just very direct with Jeremiah. And he says, Jeremiah, if the foot soldiers have wearied you, how will you handle mounted horsemen? In the image that he is giving him, most of you guys have probably seen the movie Braveheart. In the movie Braveheart, William Wallace goes out to fight the English army with the Scotsman. Well, guys, in the first battle, there's a lot of bravado. They're out there, they want to fight. But most of these guys are carrying farm tools. They don't even have real weapons. Very few of them have a sword or an ax or a battle shield. And they've got a lot of bravado until the English army comes up over the hill. But when the English army comes up over the hill, all of a sudden they see these men all in uniform, armor, chain mill, battle shields, battle axes, spears, and a hush follows over them. They begin to become afraid. And then comes the heavy cavalry, massive horses with big men in armor, and they begin to walk, they begin to trot, they begin to charge, and they come at you, and these lances come down at you. And that's the image that God is giving Jeremiah. He says, if the foot soldiers have weird you, how will you handle mounted horsemen? Now, unfortunately for Jeremiah, he never got to see the movie Braveheart, so he didn't know there was a solution to the problem there, you know. But this is what God says to his people. And one of the things that I think, guys, is that God wants his people to be tough. One of the things that I read is I read about Jeremiah, and I'm impressed by his life, by the things that he says. And this is one of the things that I think that will keep most people from sinning if they will just heed God's word. But in Jeremiah chapter 15, guys, it says, in verse 16, it says, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name. O Lord, O God Almighty, I never sat in the company of revelers. I never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me, and you had filled me with indignation. And guys, one of the things about knowing Christ, the Bible says, if you diligently seek me, you will find me. And I believe as believers that God really wants to build up the body of Christ, and especially the pastors. We're in a time that Evil is just advancing in ways that we could not imagine. You know, there's a young lady that volunteers in my office, and she works in the medical field, and she was telling me this last week, that, or a couple weeks ago, that she had a thing that came across her desk. There's a family that has a four-year-old, and they want to get a sex change for this four-year-old. Now, guys, when does this stop? When do we speak out? When do we call sin, sin, and quit pretending and try to appease these people? There is no appeasing them. This is not going to stop. We need to stand and fight against us. Now, my grandson is three years old, and he wants to be a puppy. So should I get a tail to put on the back of him, you know? I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous to think that this is acceptable behavior. One of the things that you guys need to understand is that sometimes we just get discouraged. But guys, we need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. I think about Jonathan and his armor bearer. And I love the fact that they look up at the Philistines and they say, if they say come up to us, we will know that God has given them in our, to our hands. If they say, wait till we come down, we know we need to run. And they say, come up. And they go up there and they cut down about 20 of them, it rallies an army, and the enemy is defeated. And I believe that God wants to do that within the church. See, I believe that two men with Jesus Christ can change the world. The beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. The beginning of stupidity is to fear man and to fear them. We are not to look upon their faces or care about that. We are to trust God for these very things. One of the things is, is 
Have you even been in a battle? Have you ever been where they've taken you to court or persecuted you? I'm sure there's a few of you that have. But guys, one of the things about being in God's army is we're supposed to go to war. We're supposed to be in battles. We're supposed to fight. And you can't fight if you don't go to war. You can't have victory unless you do a battle. One of the things about winning is you have to show up and you have to go through that battle. And this is what God is calling the church to do, to start fighting back, to get into the battle and to trust the Lord. I think one of the examples that I really take, I think many of you guys could take to heart very clearly was recently was uh, Don McClure's son, Mike McClure. I mean, they took him to court, they sued him, they fined him millions of dollars and Don was telling me about his son, I, I, I have to admit, I, I don't know him, but I was impressed. He said, you know, he was the kid that he never had to tell to get in devotions and, you know, he always behaved and Don actually said, hey, if you ever need a father, I'm here, just come talk to me, you know. But, you know, he did, he did what was right. But guys, he went into the battle and he clearly won the battle. The Bible says that in Matthew 16, 18, that the gates of hell will not prevail. And guys, when we read that scripture, we think of ourselves as defending the walls and the enemies coming up against us. But that's not what it is. We're going up the wall and we're tearing it down and we're destroying it for the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no trophies for spectators in sports. You want to win the rewards of heaven, you got to get in the battle. You got to share your faith. I love that Paul said that daily in Romans, he says daily that they prayed for boldness. And guys, if you lack boldness, I want to encourage you to daily pray. Now guys, when we're involved in five different wars around the world, we have the war in Southern Sudan, which I have been in for 26 years. We have the war in Burma that we're involved in. We've sent about $400,000 over just to rescue and feed believers. Uh, in Nigeria, we just took on 100 new missionaries. We, don't, we haven't even raised the money for them yet, but we decided to take them on because the Fulani are coming down and massacring all the believers. Luke and Brent were over there in one village that we're working in, there's over 400 widows because they killed all their husbands and they raped all the women. And when you go there, it's like a war zone, they're shell-shocked. And we're gonna send 100, and these are all former Fulani that have come to Christ, we're gonna train them and we're gonna send them right back up to their people. But when Ukraine, was attacked by Russia. We have 40 pastors in the Ukraine. So we had a responsibility to go in and start working. Guys, one of the things that we need to understand is that there are people out there that are extremely discouraged in life. They have lost hope. You know, it's interesting because I flew to Amsterdam on April 4th. I was meeting with our Dutch office. We we're planning our, our ongoing operations in both Afghanistan and the Ukraine. On April 6th, guys, I had a dream. Probably one of the most vivid dreams I've ever had in my life. And guys, I've been a Christian for 46 years, and 46 years, I've only had four dreams that I felt like were from Christ. In the dream, I was looking for a pastor that had gone missing. It was actually Billy Rutledge. <laughs> Billy had been over there. He was sharing Christ with all the military, going up there and leading people to Christ. But, and God used that. In my dream, he'd gone missing, and I was looking for him. And I was in a certain city, and trying to find him, and they told me that there was a sniper that was killing a lot of civilians. Well, I had been a professional shooter, and I said, guys, I'll take this guy out for you. And in the dream, I did. Well, as the dream progressed, I kind of became known, every time there was a sniper killing civilians, they would call for me. And 
one day they called me and they said, there's a sniper in this high-rise building and he's killing a lot of people. We can't get to him. Every time we get close to the building, he kills the people. And I said, don't worry about it, guys. I'll take care of it. Well, I entered the building with another sniper. In the dream, I knew who he was. I can't remember anymore who he was, but in the dream, I'd been working with him. I knew who he was. And I said to the guy, I said, listen, I'm going to go up the lead. You follow me. We're going to clear floor by floor. But you got to watch our back because if we miss him, I don't want to get shot because we missed him. So we got very high up in the building, and I came around a corner, and there was carpet with some plastic on it moving on the floor. And this is an old sniper trick to hide under things like this, so I immediately raised my weapon to fire. But something in my spirit told me, don't do it. So I walked over there, and I had my gun trained there, and I quickly, slowly pulled back the carpet. And under it was four little boys between the age of three and five. And I looked at the little boys and I said, where are your parents? They go, we don't know. And I just said, do you boys want to come home and live with me? Well, all four of them got up, and they came over, and they put their arms on my waist and my legs and started hugging me. And guys, I actually woke up with tears in my eyes. I have never in my life woken up with tears in my eyes. Uh, matter of fact, I don't think I've cried in over 40 years. I think probably the last time I cried is I, I went to In-N-Out Hamburger a number of years ago, and <laughs> when I left, they had actually put an extra double-double in my sack. And <laughs> I still get a little bit emotional about that. But I woke up, and my wife, Vicki, it was 4.30 in the morning. She had been up since 3.30. She was studying. And she goes, over. She goes, honey, what happened? And I reiterated the dream to her. And I said, I don't know what, I said, I felt like this was from the Lord. I don't know what it means, but I feel like the Lord was trying to show me something. Are, are the children out there, and I'm supposed to go find them? And guys, what affected me, the kids were so afraid. It's hard to see children in pain. And Vicki uh, started crying. She'd never seen me cry before. And so we agreed that we needed an interpretation. You know, when Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, Daniel had to interpret it. So we called one Calvary pastor and one brother, both very gifted men, and I asked him to pray and give me an interpretation. I felt like the Lord spoke to me, and what he showed me is that in the Ukraine, there are many orphans now. They've lost their parents. And guys, people are committing suicide in the Ukraine. We had one of our teams go into a city and we got to the house of a woman. She said that she had a daughter that had been killed in a car accident five or six years ago. But when Russia invaded, her daughter's apartment was hit by either an artillery shell or a rocket, and she was vaporized. They couldn't find anything of her. The day that we arrived there, the woman decided to commit suicide. She was going to kill herself. So we shared Christ with her, and she surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. And she said, I won't kill myself. I, I know I'll see my children again. But there are many people over there, and you have to understand, in America, if we lose everything, there's a safety net, whether it's welfare or Social Security. You may not be able to live the standard you used to live, but you can live. But people over there on pensions may make $100 a month. And a lot of these apartments in cities cost 60000 or more to buy for a small place. They can't rebuild, and they are killing themselves. They're committing suicide. And what I felt like the Lord was showing me is that he wants the body of Christ to not be silent. Jesus said that he left the 99 to go and find the one. And for many of us, we need to go and find these people. We need to go out there and provide for them to help them to rebuild. When this is over with, we'll have a, a table out there. And if you want to send a team into the Ukraine, we're going to start sending teams in there to help people 
rebuild, to feed people. We've taken on 15,000 people a week. Or, uh, we're going to feed 15,000 people for the next three months. We've already taken that project home. But we as God's people need to not just see things. We need to respond when God speaks to our heart. And I feel a great responsibility to care for these people because of the suffering that we're going through. In ministry, guys, I, I think there's a, something that we need to understand. I remember many years ago that they would talk about a Costa Mesa. Someone would come in and say, hey, I want to I be in ministry. And the first thing that Romaine or one of the guys would do would hand them a broom and a rake. And they said about 30 minutes later, they'd go out there and half of these guys would be gone. Well, guys, I think that's really appropriate for young kids that see people in the limelight and they want that limelight. But one of the things that we deal with in our ministry, we deal with a lot of tier one type of people, I would call them. Former top tier special forces military or businessmen that have done tremendously well in their life. And as pastors, we need to have programs for them. You know, Don McClure shared a statistic with me, I believe it was, that 82% of all people who are invited to church will come. I really believe that pastors should assemble teams and take these men that are gifted and say, I want to put you in charge of a team, and every Friday or Saturday go out and go door to door and just start inviting people and disciple them and train them how to reach people with the love of God. I believe this is extremely important for the body of Christ. Guys, I've been in war so long that I remember I was watching television. I was in a hotel a few, week, a few weeks ago, and it's one of those shows about where they're restoring cars. There's not much on TV I like to watch, but I like to watch them restore cars. And I don't know what it was about the show, but they said something, and for a moment I remember what it was like to not have a care in the world. It took me back to my youth. I cannot remember a time in my life for years that I felt that. It was actually a little bit refreshing. And I believe that we need to actively prepare to fight the enemy in this nation. We need to not be silent. We need to go to war against the forces of darkness. We need to stir up the zeal that's within us. We need to gird up the loins of our mind. And guys, one of the things you need to do most importantly is fall back in love with Christ. It is so refreshing for me to spend time with the Lord. And guys, I know that when you go through trials, the first thing that people usually do is pull away from the Lord. You know, one of the things that I found is such a great example of, in southern Sudan, people never try to bother us when I'm there. They're afraid of me. But when I leave, these guys come out of the woodworks like criminals. They're always trying to steal something, embezzle, or scare you into giving something. And so they always come at my wife, Vicky. They wait till I leave. They'll never do it when I'm there. And we actually had one general, and he was trying to get a bunch of stuff from us, and he was threatening her. And Vicky actually called him a thief, and it shook him up so much he dropped his plate of food. And uh, they laugh about it now, but she just stands. And I remember that I was over in Africa many years ago, and, I, and I, somebody introduced me. They said, hey, this is Wes. Or they said, hey, this is the director of Far-Reaching Ministries. And the guy looked over and he goes, oh, you must be Vicky. You know, I mean... <laughs> Here's this 105-pound little girl that scares the, the Jesus out of these generals, you know. But see, she stood. And for many of us, we just need to stand. We need to trust the Lord. Guys, we're going to show you a video, and then I'm just going to take a moment to come up and close.
The video, the first part is about our ghost operations, the Syrian church. The second part, you're going to see all the chaplains that we have had killed in the service of Jesus Christ. And then we'll take just a moment to close. Guys, could you go ahead and show that? When the war started, many problems happened, and it's so difficult to continue the ministry. And we know some someday uh, the problems is come inside our homes, not just in our city or in our area. Uh, at that time, I speak to the leaders, and uh, we met together, and I said, as in Acts book, the believers, when they have the persecuted, most of them, they go out of Jerusalem. If you want now to go out of your area or out of Syria to save your families, this is good if God gave you this to do. But uh, we, we must to know maybe one day the problems come to our families and to our life. And maybe we will lose our life one day. You know, when I left the room and after time, I turned back to see the decision of the leaders. I found 25 people. They stand there and they said, we will not leave. We will continue to serve God here in this area and we will continue the ministry. If we are die, we will go to Jesus. And if we leave here, we will be with Jesus. And you know, but they asked me something to do. They said, if one of our team die, you know we are non-Christian background and no one will take care about our body if we killed or something happened to us. Uh, what we can do if this happened? For that, we buy this land and we built a graveyard. This graveyard for if anyone killed from our team, we can put him there. This is the first building of our ministry. I think it first uh, happened in Raqqa city in Syria. They give the chance for the uh, Christian. They said to him, if you leave your Christianity now, you can be, uh, hold your life, or if not, we will kill you. This, this decision is, you, you know, it must to, to, to take it directly. And most of the uh, Christians said, no, we are ready to die for Jesus. And for that, they, uh, you, you can see many uh, pictures about the Christian, they put them in the cross. And when they put them, many times they put in the uh, area, all the people can see them. To learn the people, if you will be Christian, this is your, what will happen to you. Uh, and uh, most of the people, I thank God for these uh, heroes in the faith. They die for Jesus and they put them in the cross. You remember when I told you about the stories about the man who uh, was his son and uh, they bring them and they ask them to leave uh, them faith in Jesus Christ. But the father said no and the son said no. And they asked the father, if you don't, uh, come to Islam now, we will, we will kill your son in front of your, your eyes. And after that, 
they cut the head of the son and they start to play football in his head, front of his father's eyes. This is something incredible. You cannot understand what's happened. But through all this bad news, you can see the hope is growing between this uh, uh, difficult and uh, bad people. You know, so sometimes many people ask me why, why you continue in the ministry in Syria, especially in this time in the war. The important things for, uh, for our life to be in God willing. This is our call from God to, uh, to do the ministry in Syria. When we are inside the, the God willing, that means we are in the safe place. But if we are go out of God willing and go out of Syria, that means we are in the dangerous place. Maybe I, I can go like to Lebanon, to Jordan, to US, to, to anywhere and continue my life there. But that means I am go out of God willing. That means I am in dangerous. The important things in our life, not to be alive, but to be with Jesus willing. But if I am in, inside the dangerous, but in God willing, that means I am in the safe place. This is my belief and I trust in Jesus. He will keep my life and when he wants me to go to him, I am ready to do this. Guys, we've lost 69 men in the service of Christ, and we'll lose many more before this is over with. But I want you to understand something. We are winning the war for the gospel in southern Sudan. We have led tens of thousands of soldiers and hundreds of thousands of civilians to Jesus Christ. I have personally led three of the commanding generals to the Lord, and one of them is most likely going to be the future president. And he has told me that should he become the president, he will declare the southern Sudan to be a Christian nation. The last year, guys, um, had some rough roads in it for me. My father died at 86 years of age, and I had prayed with him to receive Christ many years ago, but I don't know whether he was truly born again or not. You know, those are always hard things to go through. And then I lost my personal pastor, Ray Bentley, went home to be with the Lord. And Ray had been a tremendous friend to me. His door was always open. You know, when you're in bizarre situations all the time, you, you, you think, am I thinking funny or, you know, what, do, what am I doing here? You know, I mean, I'm crossing borders with weapons to fight. You want to make sure you're on the straight and narrow. And I always had him to talk to, and uh, it was confusing because both of our wives were named Vicki Bentley, and so whenever Ray had a problem, he would say, Wes, I have a problem with Vicki Bentley, you know. <laughs> he was very diplomatic about that. Ray had been a great ambassador for the gospel. And, uh, you know, I called Pastor Joe Foch, and I said, Joe, I lost my pastor, and I'd like you to be my pastor now, and he's agreed to do that, and I'm very thankful. And I called Pastor Don McClure and I said, Don, I always had Ray to go to and talk to. And I said, I, 
I don't have that anymore. I need, I need someone to talk to about these hard decisions. And Don has been very kind to take that on and help me to make these very, very difficult things. You know, guys, one of the things that I loved about the guys when we went over there, because we had top-tier guys in the military. These guys know how to fight. Yet they didn't boast about being SEALs or Marines or special operations. They boasted in Christ. Rodney, who had all the boasting rights in the world, made everybody feel like they were better than him. He made him feel like, I'm the least of all of us. It was just such a great time of service. And I told the guys, I said, had you guys all boasted, I probably wouldn't have worked with you again, but you serve the Lord. When I was on that mountain, guys, there's a real realization you can lose your life. I mean, there really is. And we talked a lot about it before we were there. You know, I'd ask the guys, I said, what are we going to do if we run into Taliban? If they're murdering and raping and killing, are, are, are we going to engage them or are we going to avoid it? And some of the guys got within 50 yards of Taliban. Closest I ever got was maybe 150 yards. But they didn't see us. We weren't there to be seen. We were there to be unseen. We're looking for escape routes. Had they seen us, we'd had to, we'd had to deal with them. <clears throat> But I remember some of the guys, and rightfully so, said, you know, we have to look at the bigger picture. We're trying to save thousands. And, and this is where your moral compass has to be in the right place. You have to know what Scripture has told you and what your conscience can live with. And I said, you know, I can't do this. If I see them raping women and killing children, I'm just going to start dropping them. And you guys better come along because I'm paying for the trip. <laughs> But let me close with this, guys. What blessed me when I was on top of the mountain, I had a realization, and I've known this for a long time, but I remember saying, Lord, if this is my time, I'm okay with it. And the way that you get through that is when Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of your faith, you can have great peace in life. Guys, there's nothing special about me. I'm just a normal person. But the one thing I do know is how to be obedient, to obey when God tells me to do things. I mean, Billy goes through probably more crazy places than I do. He's always somewhere in the world sharing Christ, and he's got cancer. You can let the world stop you from being a light. But the one thing I want to leave you with is when Jesus talks to us, he says, let your light so shine before men that they see your heavenly Father. Do not go into ministry to build a name for yourself, but let your light so shine before men that they see Jesus. God bless you guys.